One of the things that I love about our church is, well, it happens to be what kind of church we are and our vision, which happens to be the sermon series we're in, which is a church for generations. I love that our church has so many different generations in these walls, not in these walls, but on the couches now. But we have so many different age groups that feel welcome in this place, and we have a place for every age group, from the young to old. We have everything in between. We have just an incredible church. Now, it's hard to have a church and make a church that is able to capture so many different ages and interests. It's a difficult task, but we think it's one that's worthy of being pursued. And not only do we have many different generations in this church represented, but we also have different races, different cultural backgrounds, different countries represented here. We have people that are in different seasons of life. We have the, those who have grown up in the church, and we have those who were not churched. We have so many different types of people in this place, and I love it. It's a picture of heaven. Now, with that, with all of the bonus and all of the incredible things that come with having a church like that, there are also, there are also difficulties associated with that, and we're going to get into a little bit of what that is and what they kind of flesh out to be, but inevitably, you're going to have differences of opinion, differences of passion, differences of how you were raised and what you think of certain things. And when those come into connection with other believers, there'll be tension, there'll be frustration. But I think we need to temper all of that frustration with grace. And we're going to see how Paul helps guide the church, the early church, into having grace for each other. Now, what we also want to look at when we get into Romans chapter 14 and Romans chapter 15 today, we're going to have some portions of scripture from that. We also want to make sure that we're clear. We're talking about how he was guiding people into accepting non-essential beliefs and how to meld and match, meld and melt with each other with all of that. But we also want to talk about briefly what the essentials are, things that we can't disagree on. And one of the things that I really like to turn to when I'm trying to hammer down what are the essentials of Christianity, because maybe you're asking what the essentials of Christianity are. A good litmus test for that would be the Apostles' Creed. Historically accepted by the church would be, and I'll share it with you right now. I'll, I'll share a little bit of it with you. And there could be more that we could add to this list, but it's a good starting point. So we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, who was suffered under Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, raised on the third day, and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, our Lord. Now, we also believe in the church, universal, which is the church, the true church of all time in all places. We believe in the communion of saints gathering together. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe that the body will be resurrected and that eternity will be had by those who have faith in Christ. And we come to faith in Christ through grace alone, through faith alone. That is what I would say are the essentials of what make Christianity what it is. So we can now put that aside and deal with some non-essentials and how we can grow together. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1. Welcome anyone who is weak in faith. Anyone who is weak in faith is welcome in our church. But don't argue about disputed matters. Right off the bat, he's saying, let's keep, let's major in the majors and minor in the minors. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to judge another's another's household servant? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand because the Lord is able to make him stand. This is obviously Paul's rant against vegetarianism. I'm kidding. What the early church in this context was fighting over was this delicious cut of meat. They were arguing and having division over this. Now, that may seem ridiculous to you. This looks delicious to me. It may seem ridiculous to you that they would argue, and this would cause strife in the church, a simple piece of meat. But what are you possibly arguing over that generations to come might think is ridiculous? Maybe we're not having grace for each other like they were being taught by Paul. Now, no... It's not, it's not a diatribe against vegetarianism. The Jews that had come to convert to faith in Jesus were having difficulty letting go of the ceremonial cleanliness laws and the clean food laws that they were obligated to in the Old Testament. So here we go. Jesus hits the scene. He's flipping all kinds of things upside down and doing away with all kinds of things. And those who had believed that for so long were struggling. Now, a good question to ask anytime a law or any kind of boundary is going to be removed is what is the purpose of that boundary? I wouldn't just walk into a neighborhood I just bought a house in and start tearing down fences or, or barriers or barricades because the first thing that I need to ask is why is that thing there in the first place? I could be doing a very damaging thing by removing it if I don't understand why it's there in the first place. So one of the reasons for those laws was for Israel to maintain its national identity, its purpose on the earth, that it was a special uh, creation of God and that he had a purpose for it. It was able to keep their identity together while they were being carried off into, uh, into slavery or when they were being dominated by the cultures around them. So that's one of the reasons it was there in the first place. Another side subpoint to that is it could be also an evangelistic tool that God put in place because people would look at that the Israelites, and they would say, why do they live this way? Why do they practice this? Why do they do this? And those are good questions because they lead to the one who gave the law. And people may ask that of us as the church. Why do we do what we do? Those are great questions. I want people to ask those questions. Another reason is it emphasized the point that we as unclean or defiled or sinful people can't just haphazardly approach a perfect holy being, a perfect holy God. There has to be a cleansing that takes place. But this was hard for a certain group of believers to let go. Centuries of tradition, imagine generation after generation after generation saying this is the way it's done. This is how we approach God. This is how we have our our relationship with him. This is how it works itself out. And for them to put that aside, I have a lot of grace. Growing older and getting more mature in my faith and I read this stuff, I go, man, that must have been difficult. And I can appreciate that. And for Jews living in a pagan culture, it was almost impossible for them to get meat prepared in a kosher way, which means the meat drained of all the blood. 
So all of that had to be out and drained for it to be considered something that they could eat. Now, this is what Paul is trying to explain. He's trying to say it's Christ who makes us clean before the Father. Not the rituals, not the ceremonial cleanliness laws any longer. It is now Jesus, because the Father, what he does with you and me, even to this day, is he looks through his Son at us. He looks at the perfect representation of Christ upon us. He looks at the clean one and deems us clean. So that's why Paul is trying to work this out in them. He's trying to bring them gently to that place of freedom. This is why Paul says that they're weaker in the faith. They hadn't truly understood and taken in and brought home the gospel in that way. What's interesting here is in Rome, you had Jewish converts who were struggling. They they couldn't eat this meat because it wasn't kosher. So in the Roman church, the Jewish believers were having trouble because it wasn't kosher. In Corinth, Paul instructs in the Corinthians, he says that these the pagan converts to Christianity were also not eating meat, but because the meat had been sacrificed to idols. So both racial groups were having difficulty with walking in freedom and were being shown to be weak in their faith because of that. So regardless of the weakness, one might look stronger in another cultural context. So depending on where you were, you would look stronger than some of your other brothers and Christians, brothers and sisters in the faith. This is one of the reasons it's so important to us as a church to have so many different cultural backgrounds, racial backgrounds, generational differences. We want all this to come in so that we can help each other grow in our faith and mature. We don't want to stunt growth. We want to make growth happen. And we want to get out of the way of things that make us stagnant. So spiritual maturity is not a requirement for community. I want to say that again. Spiritual maturity is not a requirement for community. Spiritual immaturity is an opportunity for us who are maybe mature to walk along slowly and gently with others and bring them into more and more freedom. Sometimes it can be shocking to walk in freedom. It may make somebody feel uncomfortable for someone else to walk in so much freedom, and we need to have grace for those brothers and sisters that have difficulty. And there is a difference between being weak and being rebellious. I think it's important for us to pause sometimes when we see a younger brother or sister in the faith walking out their faith in what we may see on a non-essential where they're not walking in lockstep with us. And we may go, oh, they're rebellious. They're, they're rejecting this thing when maybe they just don't have the level of freedom that we do. And we need to be mature and we need to be caring for that kind of person. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't confront on things that are of absolute importance and very clear-cut in Scripture, like we don't do this, we, 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 don't, we can't do that. Like, we, we're not talking about that. We need to confront each other on those issues, but we are not to beat each other up and to drag in those who are weaker in the faith and berate them and debate them into obedience in that way. Paul says the opposite is true. Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 5, says, One person judges one day to be more important than another day. Someone else judges every day to be the same. 
Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Whoever observes the day observes it for the honor of the Lord. So Paul walks away from talking about just meat, and he says, this is broader than just this topic. It, it touches so many others. And he goes, here's another one, for instance, days that we think are holy. He says, for one, if it's that one day, it is for him. If it's all days for another, it is that for them. And he's saying, don't beat each other up on this issue. It's not an essential. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide, this is important, never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Big, big statement on things being unclean or clean. He says he's convinced that there is nothing unclean in itself. Still, to some who considers a thing to be unclean, to that one it is unclean. For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. No longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. I love to debate as much as the next person, but if I start berating somebody on a non-essential, I am not following the way of love. And that is a humongous statement by Paul. I don't want to be found in that category where I am berating somebody or putting my legalism on them. There are two ways that we can cause a brother or sister to stumble. One is legalism by enforcing and, and requiring someone to believe particulars that are not essentials. Another would be by enticing them to sin by violating their conscience. What does that look like? I think a really good example of that would be the subject of alcohol consumption. So there are people, there are Christians who do not partake of alcohol at all. The term for them would be a teetotaler. They don't ingest it. They don't drink it. They don't have alcohol. Then you have another category of Christians that do have the freedom their conscience is not being bothered by having the alcohol. Both camps are, if they are walking in righteousness, obeying the one command about alcohol that we know to be true is not to be drunk, right? So we have the teetotalers and then we have those who have it. If the teetotalers point across the aisle and say to those who have the freedom, you're in sin, they're wrong. If those over here who are having the freedom point back at them and say, why don't you just come over here and try it? And, and, and they try to convince them that their conscience is, they should not obey it. They're wrong. It's about having grace for each other in the things that are non-essentials. The thing that I want to have everybody take away from what I've brought to the table right now is that love, real love does limit liberty. And that might bother you. But though you have freedom, true love will limit itself for the sake of the weaker brother, out of love. No matter what the topic is, love limits liberty. Limits liberty. I don't want to put my legalism on you, and I'm not going to push or tease you or pressure you to do something that you feel conflicted about. Aslan? Let's keep going. Let's jump to verse 19. So then, let us pursue what promotes peace and what builds up one another. Now, 
in this verse, it can be easy to, to think like, oh man, that means I can never say anything that's offensive or I can never upset anyone. That's not possible. That anyone could be offended by anything, especially by our faith that says there is only one way. So this verse isn't saying that we can never be offensive and we have to make sure we never ruffle feathers, but it's furthering the, what David was saying. We're not going to bring up nitpicky issues just to start a fight over things that do not determine our Uh, eternity. And so we're going to do things that promote peace. So let me give you an example of of one way this has played out in David and I's relationship. And I just want to say before we begin, this example might seem incredibly ridiculous, especially if you're watching this and you uh, are not a follower of Christ. If you don't subscribe to Christianity and you're just checking this out, this is definitely going to seem just really silly. But here's just one example of how this plays out. So when we, so I was raised in a Christian home and I would say a pretty strict Christian home, not strict with a bunch of rules of behavior, but strict in the content we were allowed to watch. Can I hear an amen from any other people that were raised in a Christian home? So this meant we didn't really even watch much TV. There was one TV in our house and it was in my parents' room. So only they really watched it. And if we did watch content, it was uh, very filtered, you know, no, no, no magic, nothing, you know, that could be considered questionable. And so David was raised differently. He he did not grow up a a Christian. He came to faith later. So he was not raised in a particularly religious home. And so when we got married, I think it was probably our first Halloween was coming up. And he says like, okay, what are we doing for Halloween? Where are we trick-or-treating? And I was like, excuse me? What other pagan devil worship are you planning on bringing in to my home? Like Halloween trick-or-treating, that was not something that was okay when I was growing up. And so thus began the great debate that still sometimes rages in our home, which is what? where is that line of what is okay? Because I was raised in a home where magic, uh, any kind of even cartoon portrayal of witchcraft, that was a no-go. Where David's point of view— love magic. Okay, he loves magic. So this was a great example where maybe my conscience is weaker. Maybe the background I grew up in that was stricter obviously has formed my opinion. And then also there's scripture that says in the New Testament not to have anything to do with witchcraft. And so to me, I'm like, okay, that means nothing. Not even cartoon portrayals, not even fun little games where David reads that scripture and he's like, I don't believe that's what that's saying there. It's saying we are not to participate in trying to control uh, someone or participate in witchcraft. So it's a good, albeit maybe silly example of, of a time where he had to come in and show grace to me if I had the weaker conscience, or maybe we could say that his conscience is seared. Oh no! Okay, well, it's up for debate. You can debate in your home uh, what you think on this issue. But the point is, he, out of love for me, needed to defer to what bothered me. And we are, can be open to conversation. We can be open to looking at scripture together and, and really trying to figure out what it means. But he should, and he did, out of love for me, defer to me. That is promoting peace on a on an issue that's not essential. It's not going to take away whether we go to heaven or not. But if he were to just be like, well, you're wrong. It doesn't bother me, so, so forget you. I'm taking our daughter. That would not be promoting peace, as the scripture says here. It would not be acting 
in love. And so this is where we can mess this up in the church is that you might have freedom to do something. You might have freedom uh, uh, with conviction with God about something, but the person next to you doesn't. And we can get frustrated and be like, well, forget them. Then they don't have to come or they don't have to participate. That, that's where we step out of line of love for our weaker brother or sister instead of promoting peace and promoting love and unity between us. Chapter 15, verse 1. This is the last chunk of scripture we're going to read. Now, we who are strong and ha- have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Therefore, welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. This welcome here is, uh, in some versions it says welcome, in some versions it says accept. But it's actually, the Greek word is this word right here that that I won't try to say. But it means to take in or to aggressively receive with strong personal interest. I love that. He is saying you are to aggressively receive with strong interest those who are weaker than you, just as Christ did that for you. This is a big deal. Paul is saying you need to open up your circles and make space for people who think differently than you, that believe differently than you, that maybe had a different background than you. We are to make ourselves uncomfortable and pursue aggressively these people who might think uh, or believe differently, might be weaker in the faith, have different background. And this is really opposite of what the world actually says, even though we live in a society that says we're, you know, we're so open, we're so tolerant, but we, we really aren't. We, when someone has a different opinion, different political opinion, different uh, ways of living, we really kind of have this, okay, you do you and I'll do me over here, but for my mental health and for my peace of mind and for my um, self-care, I need to not be around people who maybe upset me with their opinions or disagree with me. And Paul is saying the opposite here. He's saying, no, no, no. As Christ's followers, you make space, you make your your life uncomfortable to receive them in, to receive them in to your space, into your life. And this happens naturally, sometimes just the separation when you change seasons. And so, you know, when you're single and and you're not married, you have a lot of single friends and then you get married and then it's like, well, my single friends stay out too late and we go out too much. So now we need to make married friends. And then then you have kids. It's like, well, now we need friends with kids. And there's nothing bad about doing that. But there is a place, there is an importance for opening up your life. And, and maintaining friendships and relationships with people that are in different seasons, different backgrounds, different racial groups, because it gives us a perspective we don't have on our own. And so we need to make space. People with kids, married with kids, you need to make space in your life for the singles in this church. Make space for them. Invite them over. Get a babysitter and go out with them and do what they want to do. We need to make space. And singles, go to your friend's house that have kids, have kids climbing all over you. Make space. There's something to be gained when we blend generations. We blend different seasons. There, there is so much to be gained in our perspective of the gospel and of the scriptures. 
let me give another example, and it's not, it's not, has nothing to do with faith, but it's an example of how different backgrounds cause us to see things differently. So I was on, in a conversation one time with a couple that uh, they had an issue that kept coming up in their marriage, just kind of reoccurring throughout the years every once in a while. And so here's another debate that you can have at home and you can decide what side you're on. But the wife sometimes would load up, turn on the car, get the AC blowing, and then she would load up, you know, the children. They have multiple children. She would load them up in the car. And then every once in a while, you, you know, you might forget like, oh, I need to get my sunglasses. So she would just quickly run inside. The car is on. It's nice and ventilated. It's not in the heat. So the car's running. It's in their driveway, in their space. But she would run in to grab her sunglasses. Or maybe she forgot the baby bag. So you run in real quick, get the baby bag, get back in the car and go. Or there's that scenario where you get home and the baby's falling asleep. So maybe you leave the car running. You get the children out of the car, get the older children, get them settled in the house. And you come back out and get the baby and try to, you know, do that transfer to the crib without waking them up. So that's one side. The husband, this was very upsetting to the husband when he would find out this had happened or when he happened to see her run back inside and he's like, where are the children? She's like, oh, they're in the car. So this was an issue that continued to come up. And he's like, this is very dangerous. This is very reckless. This is like borderline, you're a bad mom. Like, do you know all it takes is 20 seconds. Someone could get in our car and our babies are gone and we never see them again. You know, and she's thinking like, what? Like, that seems extreme. And he's looking at her like, you, you're so reckless. And so as we talked further, you know, I said, okay, well, let's talk about how you guys grew up. And so she grew up in a neighborhood that was safe, a good neighborhood. She lived in a cul-de-sac and all the houses, all the parents knew each other and were friends. And so she grew up as a child playing outside, running, you know, they would go into one house and then they'd run to the other house and that, you know, everyone knew each other, everyone was safe. And so that was the environment she grew up in. So that's the lens that she sees the world through. And then I asked the husband, I said, well, tell me, about your background, where you, what was your childhood like? He said, I did not grow up in a good neighborhood. I grew up in a very dangerous neighborhood. People would get shot. Children playing would get, would get jumped. There was um, a girl that lived next to him, a little neighborhood girl when she was a child, and she was raped. Someone came by and took her and raped her. And so as he was growing up, his father said, when we go outside, you get straight in the car. We go do our business. When we come home, you go straight inside. He was not allowed to play outside. That, he's, that was not a thing you do. You can be inside. You can watch TV. You can do whatever you want inside. But we do not play outside. It's dangerous. And so using this example, obviously we see their perspectives, how, how their different backgrounds was a lens of how they viewed the world. And so when you understand that all she experienced in her childhood was safety and fun and running around and trusting the neighbors, it, she doesn't look so crazy for running in for a minute to grab her purse. Where now you can see his background, you understand like, okay, I get it. You're not just trying to be controlling and angry for the sake of controlling her. The lens you see the world through was a dangerous world. And so I use this example to apply it to the church, that we come into church, we come to Christianity from different family cultures, different backgrounds, different generations that have gone through different experiences. And so sometimes we can hear a pastor use an example or people in the church talking, and maybe something they say or an example they give is counterintuitive to the way you think or maybe can come off offensive. And so there's a lot of room for for offense and misunderstanding because of, of the lens that we're looking at church and the scriptures through. 
You can be, might be offended at the programs that aren't offered at your church. Why, how could you not have a program for this? Or why would we have a, the lens we come from, the background, the generation, the cu- cultural experience changes how we even view church and how we even view the scriptures. And so this is why we need each other. We need honesty and we need scriptures. And together as a group, as a church, we study the scriptures and we study theology and we talk about our experiences and we say, what, how are you seeing this? How is this coming alive to you? And by hearing and studying and talking through the scriptures together, we see a more full picture of who God is, of the glory of God. And so that's why it benefits us to not be the same, to not all be married with kids and not all be singles or not all be retired. We want a church that is for generations, a church that comes together, that we don't have all the same experiences because we won't be able to view the scriptures in that full way. This is my last example, and David's going to close in prayer. Just as a really practical way to apply this, if you read a verse, there's lots of verses in, in this Bible that talk about God as our Father. And you might be sitting in a small group one night, and you're just like, this, when you say that God is my Father, that just, I just don't even get that, because I didn't have a good Father. And so to me, for you to tell me God's my Father, that does nothing to me. We need that other person. There might be someone else in the room that's like, you know what? I did have a good father. My father, let me tell you what a good father is like. A good father is someone who's home when you go to bed so you're not scared at night. A good father is someone who takes care of your needs so that you are not burdened. A good father loves you even when you make your mistakes. It does not change his love for you. And so by being together, we can share our experiences. So the person that's never experienced, there's no way he can, you can read that scripture of understanding what a good father is like and really know what it means if you haven't experienced that. But by sharing and studying scripture together, we are able to give each other perspectives. Let me tell you what that's like. Let me tell you what I've experienced. And we can get a more more full picture of what God is saying to us through the word. So it's true that it is for the sake of freedom, Christ has set us free. But with that, we have to have patience and we have to walk with those who are not maybe as free as us. And we also have to recognize that our legalism can be an obstacle to those who grow. So let's pray and ask God to reveal in us where we're either being legalistic or maybe we're weak and we need to walk in more freedom. Father, we thank you that we have the the joy of waking up to your reality every day, that we get to walk into freedom deeper and deeper and into relationship with you deeper and deeper. Lord, help us to see where we are being legalistic with our brothers and sisters. Root that out of our hearts. Make us more generous and more loving with our neighbors, our family, those who hate us. Lord, help us to see that freedom is offered to all mankind, and we want to be ambassadors of that freedom. We don't want to be a hindrance to your goals. So, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have a great week. We'll see you next week.